Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 34, Fire in the Rear, Secession, Repression, and Mob Violence in Maryland. As Lincoln sought to hold the faltering Union together, he quickly encountered a potentially crippling problem that threatened to derail his plans before they even began. And that problem was Maryland. With the secession of Virginia, the national capital at Washington, D.C., came under threat of attack. Virginia troops were already ensconced in Harper's Ferry, and Richmond lay only a hundred miles away, no long journey by the already existing railroads on either front. Yet at least all that lay on the south and west shores of the Potomac River. Lincoln also had to look to his flank, where he and many others saw smoldering fires of treason. It had become obvious that Maryland already held a hot-tempered band of secessionists within it. If they successfully pulled the state from the United States, the capital would then be surrounded entirely. Worse yet, the only railroads northward ran through Baltimore, and that was the very city Lincoln had to sneak through in the dead of night just to reach his inauguration alive. If he couldn't even give a speech in that city without a real chance of assassination, how could he hope to keep it safe for the Union? Indeed, from a political perspective, Maryland almost looked worse than Virginia. The state voted, not for the more conservative Constitutional Union Party, but the extremely pro-Southern Breckenridge platform, much like the Deep South. Maryland's economy looked an awful lot like Virginia's plantation-heavy Tidewater region and slavery remained firmly ensconced there. The state governor, Thomas Hicks, had on a good day about as much pro-Union enthusiasm as Jefferson Davis. The legislature, like the governor, often appeared to openly sympathize with secession. After the bombardment of Fort Sumter, many in the streets of Baltimore openly cheered the Confederate cause. At the moment when thousands of young men were gathering arms and uniforms and trying to rally to the flag across the North, Maryland lay conspicuously silent. Indeed, a steady trickle of men streamed south, towards Virginia, where they swore loyalty to the Confederacy. That said, Maryland's government made no clear move towards either side, a stance at least nominally shared with other border states excepting Virginia in this moment. But Maryland was about to have a run-in with Massachusetts. The result was ultimately that Maryland had to get off its fence, even though they pretended not to, for a time. When Lincoln issued his emergency call to arms, among the very first to respond was a Massachusetts lawyer and politician by the name of Benjamin Butler. Balding, droopy-eyed, and bearing a notable resemblance to a sleepy bulldog, Butler nonetheless possessed ambition and energy belying his heavy-set frame. Now, we've encountered Butler before as well. Something of a political wild card. Out of all possibilities, Butler supported Jefferson Davis as the Democratic candidate for president, although he found little traction for that position. Butler himself said that, I was always a friend of Southern rights, but an enemy of Southern wrongs. And he meant it. Besides, Benjamin Butler was absolutely nobody's fool, and he no doubt saw the priceless opportunity to win renown while serving his state and country together. Though no soldier, Butler was a prominent politician and proved a very capable organizer. 
after persuading the governor of Massachusetts to recruit even more men than Lincoln requested of that state, Butler became the natural choice to lead the body. Butler was, in fact, in court when he received word that the governor needed him on the task, whereupon he self-importantly declared such to the judge and left mid-trial. As it happened, the Massachusetts men became particularly valuable in this very moment. Although Southerners proved to have an edge in drilling militia, they were not alone. Other states had become concerned amid all the tension, and they turned out a few well-equipped units very early, including the very soldiers Butler proposed to lead. The Massachusetts men were not, however, the first to make their way to Washington. That honor belonged to a battalion or so of Pennsylvania recruits, several hundred altogether. These made their way to the city through Baltimore on April 18th, and it did not go well. Although they made it through, Baltimoreans nearly rioted in the process. The soldiers endured an equal measure of curses and stones. As of yet, however, nothing more occurred, but this presaged a dangerous conflict. On that same day, Benjamin Butler's advance regiment reached New York City, which cheered them heartily. They might not yet be hardened veterans, but the six Massachusetts looked sharp and disciplined, and they marched smartly enough. The event turned into an impromptu parade, which finished with a handsome feast at the Astor House Hotel. The next day, this early cadre of volunteers entered Baltimore, and here they walked unwittingly into a hornet's nest, and a much less honorable reception. Now, through a quirk of the rail network, the troops were all forced to switch trains. This meant crossing the city, because the two rail lines didn't merge at a single station. In most days, this would have been no more than a moment's delay. The colonel, Edward Jones, simply ordered his soldiers onto carriages to speed them over to the other station, and likely thought no more of it. He couldn't have realized just how fast a threat would develop. Most of the troops arrived without incident, but the last few hundred got caught up in the middle of a tornado of angry Baltimoreans. When the public realized more Union troops were passing through, a furious mob rushed into the streets, hurling bricks and abuse. The soldiers, initially spaced out in the carriages and unable to push through, suddenly seemed to have every thug and housewife in the city screaming incoherently in their midst. But the soldiers formed up, and finally began to shove past it all. Then, someone in the crowd, whose identity has never become clear, chose the most foolish and vicious course possible, and shot one of the soldiers with a pistol. Frightened and not a little bit wrathful in return, the soldiers, though raw and untried in battle, unleashed a volley of rifle fire instead of panicking and breaking. Some in the crowd blazed away with revolvers in return, leading to more bloodshed. The troops left behind four of their own, plus a dozen Baltimoreans dead in the street. But they managed to escape, and they continued on to Washington, where they took up garrison positions in the city. In response, the city fathers of Baltimore decided against retaking control over the streets, or calling out the militia to enforce order. Instead, they received approval from Governor Hicks to destroy the railroad bridges north, cutting the rail lines entirely in the hopes of blocking more northern troops from entering the city. At the same time, excited secessionists rose up. They cleaved the telegraph wires between Baltimore and Washington, leaving the seat of government completely in the dark. Police Marshal Kane called hundreds of secessionist-minded men with guns to defend his city. 
Now, this should be kept in mind for later. These actions were at the very best closing to the absolute thinnest line away from treason, and possibly stepping very far over it. All this caused a week-long panic in Washington. It appeared that the nation was coming apart before Lincoln could even gather a full thousand men together. Wild and desperate rumors circulated that Virginia and Maryland troops were at that very moment closing in for the kill. Able-bodied citizens and federal employees, presumably still dressed in the everyday clothing of their work, grabbed guns and barricaded offices under an impromptu defense organized by General Winfield Scott. Even the newly appointed minister to Russia, a Kentucky abolitionist named Cassius Clay, joined the makeshift militia and shouldered a rifle. He organized a small troop, known as the Clay Battalion, and earned the undying respect of Lincoln himself in the process. Now, the city wasn't cut off during this period, nor under siege, but the new dependence on rail and telegraph alike became immediately and painfully clear. Without those means of communication, Washington suddenly appeared like an island, beset by potential foes on every side, as even the simplest of messages now required days on horseback, carried by hand, to reach a friendly ear. That said, there simply weren't enough men or arms in Washington to fight off a serious attack, even if courage was in no short supply. Lincoln could not reopen communications with what he had on hand. It seemed that the capital lay trapped between Virginia south and west and Maryland east and north. After a few days of this tiring routine, even the president seemed about ready to collapse. Looking out from the White House window, he despondently whispered, Why don't they come? To no one in particular. Not helping matters was the fact that the Marylander politicians responsible, specifically the mayor and police chief, rode over to Washington themselves and asked Lincoln to keep further federal troops out of their city. For the moment, President Lincoln could only lamely ask them to keep their own thugs at home, playing for time and not making an issue of something he couldn't resolve. So he lamely requested, Keep your rowdies in Baltimore and there will be no bloodshed. That said, he didn't forget this problem. In particular, Lincoln's bodyguard Alan Pinkerton suspected Police Chief Kane of tacit involvement in a plot to assassinate Lincoln, the very same which caused the president-elect to sneak through Baltimore a few weeks prior. Yet at this dark moment, help came from that somewhat unexpected source, Benjamin Butler. When General Butler realized what happened to his initial brigade, he pressed his remaining force southward with all speed. He led the soldiers, as well as others sharing his route, down through Annapolis instead of Baltimore. This bypassed the railroad, although it meant a longer journey by ship. Landing without incident, he found the rails and locomotives trashed by Confederate sympathizers. He then employed mechanics among his own troops to rebuild a locomotive, wrecked by secessionists on a spree but still fixable, and took it right up to Washington. From the far side, Simon Cameron for once turned in sterling service, quickly organizing engineers to fix the rail line from the Washington end, and thereby helping to speed Butler safely along to the Capitol. This would, in its own way, turn out to be a microscopic picture of the Civil War. He who controlled transportation controlled the nation. It also foretold many of the difficulties Confederates would encounter over the next few years. When secessionist agitators in Maryland smashed the trains and tore up the rails, they were destroying 
what they themselves could not replace. Massachusetts alone produced substantially more manufactured goods than the whole Confederacy, and in an American context, practically was the birthplace of rail travel. Butler found his path eased by the fact that his very soldiers had actually made some of the engines he rode to war upon. Few, if any, in the Confederacy could ever say the same. Moreover, the Union in the end won by attacking the problem of secession, so to speak, from both ends geographically, militarily, and even politically. Regardless, Butler's arrival in Washington came as no small relief. Even two well-drilled brigades would ensure the city's safety for some time. It also earned Benjamin Butler the unfailing gratitude of Abraham Lincoln, which would have quite a few complicated consequences, good and bad alike, down the line. Butler, who had even less military experiences to his name than even Lincoln, quickly ascended to very high rank. Unfortunately, he would come to excel in every facet of military life, except actually leading troops in a war zone. We will, of course, discuss Butler down the line, but he was nearly literally the modern major general. Though he proved in his lifetime a skilled lawyer, a clever politician, and a top-notch administrator, he yet remained a very poor soldier all the same. Still, even as such, he would come to outshine many professional soldiers even on the field of battle, and Lincoln could always find some way to put Butler's talents to good use. So for the moment, his troops were guarding Washington. But what else lay in store? They were, after all, still cut off from the North, right? Well, as it turned out, that changed within a few days. In fact, Maryland secessionists had already shot their bolt, and almost no more resistance would be offered. Governor Hicks called the legislature into session on April 25th at Frederick in western Maryland where Union sentiment was stronger, instead of Annapolis or Baltimore. It quickly proved that Confederates among them were deeply in the minority, though perhaps allowed in destructive minority. The legislature issued some perfunctory statements of neutrality, but otherwise remained entirely loyalist. Governor Hicks himself stayed neutral, pro-slavery and identifying a Southern, yet broadly opposing secession. The Massachusetts men had been but the first of many thousands of soldiers already pushing through Maryland, and as it turned out, there weren't very many Marylanders taking up the banner of the Confederacy anyhow. The summer elections turned secessionist sympathizers out of office and installed new, staunchly Union men in their place. And whether you call it ironic or fitting or both, the state which had seen riots against Union soldiers had their own regiments arrayed in Union blue inside a month, with little more fuss over the matter, even in Baltimore. That said, one of the very first tasks for the growing army was tightening the nation's grip on Maryland. And this brings us to the historical tale of Ex parte Merryman and its significance for the war years. We briefly mentioned that secessionist-friendly militia units took a major part in wrecking telegraphs, railroads, and bridges. Among the ranks of their leaders was John Merriman, a local planter of some means. John Merriman soon faced arrest by Union soldiers, along with quite a few other prominent Marylanders, including politicians and civic office holders, and yes, our old friend Police Chief Kane. 
Merriman himself got locked up in Fort McHenry. And before you ask, yes, that Fort McHenry, about which the national anthem itself was written. Lincoln rammed all this through by imposing martial law and suspending habeas corpus in parts of Maryland, rendering that part of the country, in effect, a military dictatorship. If the workings of legal jargon are not entirely known to you, habeas corpus is the right to trial, which, under normal circumstances, or really any but the most bizarre, is almost completely inviolable under the American law. Lincoln, however, invoked an article of the Constitution to suspend it. The reason this became a legal cause celeb is that Merriman didn't take the issue lying down. He appealed to the courts and, in fact, received an order requiring the Lincoln administration to produce him for trial, or presumably release him immediately. However, the military authorities simply dismissed the court's order, since they had the administration and the aforementioned executive orders behind them. And also, they had a lot of angry young men with guns in uniform, whereas the court held a handful of rather old men and no guns. To the surprise of absolutely nobody, the courts didn't like this one bit, and in fact issued a rather scathing denunciation of Lincoln's actions, as well as a specific refutation of the idea that the president could suspend habeas corpus. That power, the court said, belonged to Congress and not the presidency. You may ask, who actually signed the court's order? Well, even if you didn't, we're going to tell you. It was none other than our old friend, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Roger Taney. Not only was the born and bred Marylander Chief Justice, he also headed the Federal Circuit Court that included Maryland. This was quite common in those days. But you can likely well imagine the Republican response to absolutely anything Roger Taney's name got attached to. But in particular, Roger Taney now appeared to be slyly siding with secession under the cover of law. This didn't even make him look that good in the eyes of Northern Democrats. But Taney's arguments, though at least reasonably based on constitutional interpretation, succeeded here even less than in the Dred Scott case, although for similar reasons. In both cases, he might have had a legal leg to stand on, but he aroused a firestorm that essentially destroyed his position on the principles. In early 1861, in Maryland, secessionists really were destroying private and public property and were, in fact, scheming to take the state into rebellion against the lawful national government. Congress had adjourned and was not immediately available to deal with the crisis point, even had they been so inclined, which we will return to shortly. No government, even the most honest or law-abiding or well-meaning, can simply allow itself to fall to pieces, or it is no government at all. Lincoln and his administration had to act, and with too many officials in Maryland apparently compromised by Confederate sympathies, or at least too apathetic to do anything, law had to be restored by whatever means were available. Taney, trying to restrain Lincoln with a very narrow, structuralist argument, failed to recognize that events were moving far past legal technicalities. This was now war. Lincoln responded as such, rhetorically asking, Are all the laws but one to go unexecuted, and the government itself go to pieces, unless that one be violated? And in any case, 
Merryman would not be either the last man imprisoned under martial law during the war. Yet a free thing happened to him and many others. President Lincoln had the good grace, and better sense, not to create martyrs. These people were held for a time, and then released without further punishment. Most spent a few months under lock and key, others as long as a year. But none faced summary execution, and the imprisonment was undoubtedly unpleasant, but hardly inhumanly cruel. Now, before we close today, John Merriman was completely guilty. At a minimum, he was at least under threat of being executed as a traitor given his activities. There is no real doubt that he was involved as accused. Historians all seem to agree on that account. However, most likely not everyone arrested had much evidence against them. In many cases, the arrest probably happened because of private accusations or correspondence taken from telegraph offices. The government revealed no reasons for its actions. This probably was the best course of action available to them, but it does leave the historical student with little to go on in any individual case. We simply have no clear way to assess them. Roger Taney, for his part, was clearly sympathizing with secession and privately expressed a desire to take Maryland into the Confederacy. That said, before we close today, we did promise to get back to the issue of Congress, because we do need to understand the role and impact of that body in this time. The legislature traditionally met for only around half the year. During the other half, congressmen worked in various ways, met with constituents, and prepared for the upcoming legislative session. More or less as normal, Congress had gone into recess in March of 1861, although the Senate temporarily remained active at the behest of President Buchanan, in order to attempt a resolution over the secession crisis. However, even the Senate broke camp and its members departed Washington just in time for secessionists to wreck the political scene with the attack on Fort Sumter in April. This is why Congress was not available to deal with the problem themselves, and why President Lincoln both felt it necessary to take drastic action and felt empowered to do so without legislative sanction. Lincoln really was pushing the legal boundaries here, decreeing an increase in the size of the regular army and navy, and calling up a large volunteer military. This doesn't mean that congressmen weren't active in this period. Upon hearing of Fort Sumter's fall, many of them immediately took action in their own states and districts to spur the gears of war into action. Members held rallies. They talked to the governors of their states. They pushed forward candidates for military rank, or even took up such service themselves. In many ways, they helped the mobilization actually occur. And in our next episode, we'll take a look at one specific, crucial example of this, as Missouri faces the battle over secession both figuratively in its halls of government and literally in the streets of St. Louis. So join us next time for Nathaniel Lyon and the Camp Jackson Affair. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening.